do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexual immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be contented with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strong by grace, not by foods which have no benefit to those devoured to them. We have an altar for which those who serve the tent has no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sins are burnt outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reapproach he endured. For here <clears throat> we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you that more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored unto you sooner. This is God. This is the word of the Lord. All right. We are getting near the end of our uh, Hebrews series. And if you were here last week when we finished up chapter 12, 
you know that chapters 1 through 12, the conclusion of chapter 12, were devoted really to, the, to, the, to one single idea, the superiority of Jesus and the application of which primarily has been all throughout, don't apostatize. Don't leave Jesus. Jesus is superior. Don't, don't go back to your old way of life in Judaism. Stick it out with Jesus. So that's been the argument from chapter 1 all the way through the end of chapter 12. But as we get to 13 now, we're getting to the, the closing remarks of the letter. And so all the things that the author has not touched upon throughout chapters 1 through 12, which nonetheless were important to the author and he wanted to make sure he said, he, he, he crams them in here at the, uh, at the close of the letter. It's interesting, even in the... Uh, uh, verse 22, which we'll get to in the coming weeks. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Now, well, that's, a, that's, a, that's his brief version of a letter, right? If he had gone into all the things he just talked about in chapter 13, it would have been twice as long. And so, as I was reflecting on how do we preach, how do I preach through chapter 13, given just the wide variety of topics that are covered here in chapter 13. I don't know if you quite were thinking of this or catching all of it, but there are actually 10 different admonitions that the author gives here as he's closing out the letter. It's a little bit like when you're going to school and uh, as you're walking out the door, your mom shouts after you, you know, uh, don't forget to eat your vegetables in the lunch I patch. Be nice to the kids uh, in your class. Make sure you do your homework and walk with the king and be a blessing. You know, and it's all these little things that are coming after you right there at the end. That's what the author is doing. So I was trying to think, how, could I, how can I preach these 10 different admonitions here in chapter 13? And my first thought, which then was quickly dismissed, my first thought was, well, I could just preach a 10-point sermon. And, uh, but then I thought, no, because like, you know, you got the intro, you got the conclusion, you got 10 points, you get five minutes for each, and we would be here all day. So that was not a good idea. So then I was thinking, what can we do to kind of tackle this passage here? Now here's what I want to do. What I want to do is I want to just do a quick uh, walkthrough of these 10 admonitions, just make sure that uh, we understand what the author is talking about here, what the different admonitions that he's giving. The focus, though, where I want to spend our time really reflecting is uh, subsequent to that. I want us to, to try to draw out two broad uh, applications, two broad principles that we can take from these 10 different admonitions in 13 that would allow us uh, to navigate all of life. So here's the two kind of unifying ideas or the two unifying principles that I want us to get from these 10 admonitions. I'm going to give them to you at the front end, and then we're going to come back to them then uh, at the end of the sermon. The first one is this. There's more to the Christian life than the Christian life. There's more to the Christian life than the Christian life. And I'll explain that uh, when we get to that. And then the second is this. All of life is Christian life. And I'll explain that one too we get to the end of it. So I'm going to walk through, again, I'm going to walk through these 10 admonitions, draw out some of the 
just the meaning of these so that we understand. Maybe, maybe the Lord's got a word for you on one of these 10 admonitions. Admonition number six is your admonition. I don't know what it would be. But we're really going to focus on these principles that we can take from all of these uh, together. So looking at 13 uh, and moving through these admonitions with some uh, quickness. In, uh, in verse 2, the author instructs uh, his readers to show hospitality. Hospitality was a big deal in the ancient world. What's interesting here, though, is he's not thinking of just hospitality with people that you know. So this isn't inviting your friends over for dinner or your neighbors over for dinner because he knows what he says here. He says, in showing hospitality to strangers, some have even entertained angels unaware. So his focus on hospitality here is on stranger hospitality. And that's not as common in our culture as it would have been in their culture, but it may be something for us to think about, right? That hospitality extends beyond those that we know, even into those that we don't know. Verse 3, he says, to remember those in prison. Prison in the ancient world was a different sort of thing than our experience here in North America and the 21st century. And in the ancient world, prisons, they didn't have like a prison house where they supplied food and clothing and, and uh, all of that for the prisoners. Often prison would be in someone's home with a, a guard there. And it was really left to the prisoners' family and friends and supporters to provide the food and the clothing to the prisoner while they were under arrest or in prison. And so as the author is talking to his readers about remembering those who are in prison, he, I think, has in mind, he's saying, those among you, those that you know, those that are part of your fellowship who are in prison, don't forget them. Because it'd be tempting, like those people probably are in prison because of their faith, and then you're going to show up in the prison aligning yourself with them, and that maybe brings the spotlight to you. So the temptation would have been to withdraw from those who are in prison. The author is saying, don't do that. You've got to remember those who are in prison. They're, they're your kindred. You need to, to stick it out with them. Then he talks about honoring the marriage bed in verse 4. And here there's this call to faithfully honor one's marriage vows, but not even just one's own marriage vows. I think when you look more broadly at the New Testament, the concern is not just to honor one's own marriage vows, but to honor the marriage vows of others. Right, so even if I'm a single person and then I start becoming inappropriate with someone that's married, I have dishonored the marriage vow. I have dishonored marriage vows. And so the author says, don't do that. Let's honor the marriage bed, honor the marriage vows. Then he talks in verses 5 through 6 about the love of money. Pretty straightforward, I think, uh, that we uh, likewise are just as fascinated by money as the ancient world was. And the author says uh, that the more you love money, the less content you are. The more content you are, the less you're going to love money. And so he says, be free of the love of money. God knows what you need. He's going to take care of you. That's five and six. And then in uh, verse seven, he gives the instruction to, to remember their leaders and to imitate their leaders, to consider the outcome of the way of life and the faith of the leaders that are among them. So here in this church community, perhaps it was in Rome, we're not sure exactly uh, where it was, but there, was, there were pastors and elders that were over that local community, and the, 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 uh, the author who's writing to them is, is telling the whole congregation, remember your leaders, think about the outcome of their life and how God has honored them, and do likewise. Then in verses 8 through 9, he instructs them to avoid diverse and strange teachings. Strange in our culture has more of a synonym 
of like weird. So he's not necessarily, necessarily saying avoid weird teachings. He's saying avoid strange teachings. And I think what he has in mind by the idea of strange uh, is this idea of foreign or different. And so Jesus Christ, he says in verse 8, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus' teachings and who he is stays the same. And avoid teachings, strange foreign teachings that are run contrary to the continuity of who Jesus is. So don't, uh, don't entertain, as it were, strange or diverse teachings. And then in 10 through 15, he takes a rather uh, uh, more elongated time here to talk about bearing Christ's reproach. And I'm actually going to come back, we're going to come back uh, next week to 10 through 15. So I'm not going to get into it now. So we're going to kind of do a sweep through 19, and then next week we'll focus on 10 through 15. And uh, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking there. But the punchline of it is, is that Jesus has come under reproach. The cross is a crucifixion of reproach and shame. And the author is saying, don't shy away from Jesus's reproach. Come and share in Jesus's reproach. And then in verse 16, he talks about sharing the things that you have with others, particularly those who would be in need. Again, a lot of continuity between the ancient world and our world, the idea of sharing and being generous. And then in 17, he talks about obeying your leaders. And so again, right into this congregation, he's saying, listen to the leaders and obey the leaders and submit to them uh, that are over you because they're going to have to give an account to God for the state of your soul. And so, because they have to give an account to God for the state of your soul, make that day of accounting for them a day of joy and a day of rejoicing rather than a day of, uh, of sorrow, he says. And so, um, remember the leaders and obey your leaders. And then finally, in 18 and 19, he closes by asking for prayer for himself. Pray also for me. Now, I want to, I, I, need, I need your uh, prayers on my behalf. I want to come visit you. Pray, uh, pray for me as well. So we've got 10 different admonitions here. We've got um, showing hospitality, remembering those in prison, honoring the marriage bed, uh, being free of the love of money, imitating the faith of their leaders, avoiding diverse and strange teachings, bearing Christ's reproach, sharing what they have, obeying their leaders, and then praying for the author himself. Lots of stuff going on here. He's covering many different aspects of life. So in the Chapters 1 through 12, he just really had one thing he was concerned about, apostasy. He wanted them to stick it out in the faith. But lest we think that that's the only, like he's just got tunnel vision, that's the only thing that he cares about. It's not. He cares about the whole life. And so as he's closing out, he hasn't had time to get into all these things, but as he's closing out the letter, he gives a rapid-fire list of all these admonitions that span just the whole uh, aspect of our lives. So let's see if we can take this list of 10 and we can focus it down to two major points of application or two premises. So here's the first point of application, kind of taking all of these things together in the aggregate. Don't limit your Christian life to the, quote, Christian life. Don't limit your Christian life to the Christian life. The author of Hebrews, I think, is here reminding us, and we can see this all throughout the New Testament, that we shouldn't view our explicit Christian activities as the limits for how far the influence of our faith extends. 
Sometimes I think we can limit the scope of our faith to only explicitly religious activities, such as attending church or scripture reading, small group, prayer, and so forth. And then we can think of these things as our Christian life. So if I were to say to you after the service, I would say, hey, how's your Christian life going? Like maybe what would come to your mind would be like, have I been reading the Bible? Have I been going to church? You know, how's, how have worship experiences been when I'm in the worship? So like, how is my Christian life going? Right? You immediately go to kind of explicitly Christian things, perhaps. Right? But if, but, but if I were to say to you, like, how's your Christian life going? You would not probably start saying, well, my astronomy class actually has been going very well. Thank you for asking. Right? So we, we tend to limit, as it were, our Christian life to our explicitly religious activities. Then, if we're not careful, though, we can sort of bracket our faith out from the rest of what we might think of as normal life. So we've got our Christian life, explicitly Christian activities, then we've got our normal life. Now, it's easy to see how reading our Bibles and attending church on Sundays, these are part of our Christian life, but we may not be as prone to consider our work, our relationships, our social media use, our entertainment choices, our schooling, our studies, as all part of our Christian life. And when we fail to consider the non-religious aspects of our life as part of our Christian life, Listen to this now. We can be more prone to act and think in contrary ways to our faith in those non-religious aspects of our life. So James K. A. Smith, he's a theologian and an author whom I've read with profit uh, at various points, and he wrote a book called Desiring the Kingdom. And uh, in, the, in the book, it covers a lot of territory, but he, there's a section where he's lamenting the fact that Christians can too narrowly limit the reach or the scope of their faith. Listen to what he writes. He says, Isn't it the case that though many Christians in North America gather for worship week in and week out, we don't seem to look very peculiar? That is, we don't seem to be a people that looks very different from our neighbors, except that we go to church on Sunday mornings while they stay home reading the newspaper. It's a telling observation. Do we look peculiar beyond our explicit religious activities? Is it really the case that the only difference between Christians and non-Christians is that Christians do Christian things, like read the Bible and go to church and pray, and non-Christians don't. But otherwise, our lives are pretty much exactly the same. When we conceive of our Christian life as applying to distinctly explicit Christian things and bracket it away from the rest of life or our normal life or our real life, which is even a worse way to think about it, right? we can tend to think about all of these areas of life as somehow distinct and separate from our Christian life and then fail to bring Christ to bear in those areas of our life. Jesus did not incarnate into our humanity, walk our road, and then die on our cross, and then rise from the dead merely to teach us how to perform Christian activities. He did not do all that so that we could become Bible readers. 
But otherwise, our lives look exactly the same as everybody else. He came into this world to teach us how to properly live out our whole lives, every aspect of our life, in conformity with who he is. And the author of Hebrews is here then in chapter 13. He's reminding us that we shouldn't limit our Christianity to our Christian life, to our explicitly religious or spiritual activities. Our Christian faith should impact all aspects of our lives. Our hospitality, our view of money, our care for others, and beyond. So if you're a Christian here this morning, let me ask you this question. In what ways is your life different because you're a Christian? In what ways is your life different because you're a Christian and you can't, here's uh, out of bounds, you can't list all your religious activities. You can't list church attendance and reading the Bible and praying. If you, if you separate your religious activities, what way is your life substantively different because you're a Christian? Beyond your explicit religious activities, how is your life shaped by your Christian faith? What priorities govern your choices, your dreams, your non-religious activities? Are there areas of your life that you perhaps unconsciously consider irrelevant to your faith? Not against your faith, not contrary to your faith. You don't move into those spaces and start sinning, but you've just actually never connected your faith to that area of life. Do you have areas of your life that you consider subconsciously or perhaps consciously irrelevant to your faith because those areas are not explicit spiritual activities? Perhaps some of you need to sit with that for a while. Really just contemplate that and ask the Lord to show you the areas of your life that you have allowed to become, as it were, neutral areas of your life. And while you're sitting with that, let me move us to our second point of application, which is really meant to help us ponder this first question, this first point of application. Sometimes when I'm explaining things to my kids, I... I, uh, I start going very deep, and they just stare at me, and they say, we don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and I feel like this next point might be one of those moments for us as a congregation. So I'm going to hope that that's not the case. But what I want to do is I want to try to help us think about and answer this question, like, why is it that we do have this temptation, this tendency to bracket our faith out from certain areas of our life? Like, what, what's the kind of petri dish or the soil out of which that sort of bracketing tends to occur? Like, how does that even happen? And I want to try to get beneath that down into, like, the substructure that we can just cut that off from the root. All right, so let's dig into this second point. Bear with me. So the first point, don't limit your Christian life to your Christian life whole life. Right, that's the first point. But here's how you do that. Here's how you can be sure that you do that. Second point. Acknowledge that all of life is inherently Christian. Now let me see if I can unpack this. I suspect that many of us tend to think of the non-spiritual aspects of our lives as neutral zones. 
Such aspects of our lives, we think, are not inherently Christian, nor are they inherently non-Christian. They're just kind of neutral spaces out there. So like tennis, for instance. Some of you are tennis players. And you don't think of tennis as a Christian activity, nor do you think of tennis as a non-Christian activity. It's just a neutral activity that exists. So then you hear what I've just been saying about how we need to bring Jesus to bear in all areas of our lives. You hear that, and you think that what I've been saying about how our faith needs to impact every area of our life, and from that perspective, then you think that the way forward in Christian maturity means to engage these neutral areas of life in Christian ways. So from this perspective, tennis, marriage, work, recreation, parenting, finances, they all exist as neutral areas of our lives. And then, since tennis, for instance, is neutral, we think that we can either choose to Christianize tennis by playing fairly and not swearing out our opponent and whatever it might be, or we can choose to not Christianize tennis by playing in ways that are contrary to who Christ is, but, but tennis exists as its own thing that we can either Christianize or not Christianize. Our marriages exist as things that we can Christianize or not Christianize. Our work, same way, and on and on it goes. But what I would suggest to you is that we are starting with the wrong premise about the nature of the world that God has made. So the very beginning of our book of Hebrews, chapter 1, in the first couple of verses, the author is introducing to us who the Son is. He's going to argue for the superiority of the Son throughout all 12 chapters that we've studied so far. But he wants us to know the identity of the Son, first off, in the first couple of verses of chapter 1. And the first thing he wants us to know about the identity of the Son and to why he's superior over all things is because the Son is the maker and framer of the world. All things that exist have been made by the Son. And as such, all of reality belongs to Him. Christian maturity, then, is not about Christianizing neutral earthly realities, as though reality were some neutral independent substance that had come into being on its own independent of Christ and that had organized itself independent of Christ. But rather, Christian maturity is about recognizing that all earthly reality is, in fact, from its very beginning, already inherently Christian. Let me see if I can give more clarity to that by giving you an illustration. Imagine that you were born into a kingdom and you live near the palace in the capital city. And off to the west is the great sea, the coast. And off to the right is a great river. And your whole life is spent in between the great coast and the great river. And you grow up in this kingdom and you come to appreciate the values of the king and of the kingdom and the peace and the justice and the dominion that is given there in that space that you live into and you enjoy. But you know that there are lands beyond the river, out on a great plain that extends as far as 
you even know beyond your imagination. And people have come in from that land beyond the river, and they've come into the capital city and the palace, and they've talked about how they used to live out in the land beyond the river, but now they've come in, and they, they've, they've benefited from the kingdom in which you've lived, and, and they've enjoyed it. And as you grow and mature, you decide that you yourself want to go see the lands beyond the river. And so when you come of age, you go and make your, your journey down to the great river, and you cross the river, and you move into the lands, and you're astounded to discover that there is that there are whole massive groups of people and great cities and places of learning and architecture and art and whole schools of thought that span as far as you can see beyond the river. And you find that as you live there longer, you, you, you lose a little bit of your perspective and framework from the kingdom that you came from. And, and so you, you love the kingdom you came from, you love your king, and you don't want to lose uh, perspective with this world in which you're living now. So you make your way back across the river and you kind of reestablish yourself in loyalty to your king and to the palace and the kingdom. But then you begin to think, well, all these people who live in the land beyond the river, like they too should come live with my king because he's so great. And so you decide you're going to become an evangelist and go into the land beyond the river and you're going to spread the word, as it were, of the greatness of your kingdom. And so you make your way back across the river and you, you, you spread the word saying, you know, my kingdom and my king, he's great and you should come and you should, you should come there and dwell and live. And, but you go occasionally back to the king and the palace to kind of reacclimate yourself and then you go back into the land beyond the river and, and back and forth, back and forth. And on one of these journeys, you're, you're uh, making a speech to, to some people and a wise old man in one of the cities beyond the river, he takes you aside and he says, don't you know? says, this land is the king's land. The king's dominion extends beyond the river. In fact, it extends beyond the river all across this great plain for days and days and days to another great coast. And his armies are all arrayed along the coast, and he sends his messengers back and forth through his land. You don't need to tell the people here that this land belongs, that this land, uh, that they should come belong to the king's land. But rather, you need to tell them that this land, all of it, belongs to the king. I think sometimes we can fall into that same sort of mindset. We think like this space belongs to the king. Out there, doesn't. And when we leave this space, we're moving out into to enemy territory, as it were. And the goal is to get the people out there to come into the space where the king lives. But that's not really it. All throughout Scripture, all throughout the New Testament, the king owns it all. He has all of it. When we move out into that space, we're still on the king's territory, as much as we are on the king's territory here. All reality, from coast to coast, is in reality Christ's reality. There are no spheres of human existence that do not belong to Jesus. Our task is not to bring our Christian faith with us into neutral areas of life, as though Jesus didn't already have sovereignty in those places. Not to bring Christ into neutral areas of life. There are no neutral areas of life. Thinking of certain areas of life as neutral and outside of Jesus' scope of sovereignty is, in fact, the root of the problem. Mathematics, ballet, art, Geography, economics, architecture, astronomy, and tennis are not neutral spaces. 
Jesus has ordained the creativity. He has empowered the human ingenuity. And he has enabled by his sovereignty all things that exist in the world that we see and in the universe. Christ, whether we acknowledge it or not, already owns and is present in every aspect of life. Not like some foreign colonizing power that has invaded a smaller territory and laid claim to something that was not inherently his own. But he created all things. No, the author of Hebrews actually tells us that what makes Jesus unique is that he is like a builder who has built the house with his own two hands. And the whole of creation, the author tells us, is the house that Jesus has made. And we human beings live in his house. If you've ever gotten an email from Pastor Eric, he's got at the bottom of his email uh, a little saying from Abraham Kuyper. It's a footer to his, all of his emails. If you haven't seen it, just everyone send Pastor Eric an email, <laughs> and uh, then he'll send you an email with the reply with the footer on it. But it's an email, uh, it's a statement from Abraham Kuyper, who was a Reformed Dutch theologian. And, and uh, this is what is at the bottom of Pastor Eric's email. It's a great statement uh, from Abraham Kuyper. He says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And the reason he cries, mine, is because it is his. He doesn't make it his. It is his. And we don't need to make it his. It already is his. Our whole life should be Christian because the whole of reality is Christian. Everything exists in and through him. So question then for my Christian friends this morning to ponder, are there any areas of your life that you have wrongly considered neutral territory. Like maybe, that's, maybe that is the root about why you keep kind of bifurcating your life into Christian and non-Christian. Because you think of certain areas of your life as not distinctly Christian or under the lordship and sovereignty of Jesus. You think of them as neutral territories. How might you behave differently in those spaces if you more consciously and fully recognized that those spaces belonged to Jesus, listen, just as much as this space. We know how this space belongs to Jesus. But you know the tennis court belongs to Jesus just as much as this space? Your workplace belongs to Jesus just as much as this place? Every aspect of your life, every aspect of creation belongs to Jesus. Is the false division between religious and neutral, between my Christian life and my not Christian life, perhaps contributing to your tendency to limit the scope of your faith to only religious, explicit religious activities? And to my non-Christian friends here this morning, so I believe with you, the reality of Christ's all-encompassing sovereignty confronts you this morning. 
be informed on the front end as you are considering perhaps converting to Christianity, giving your life to Jesus. Be informed on the front end prior to that decision as you consider Christ's call in your life that Jesus' lordship reaches into every area of life because every area of life inherently belongs to him. Jesus is not interested in merely being the Lord of your religious life. He is rightfully and more lovingly interested in being the Lord of your whole life, every aspect of your life, because he is indeed the Lord of your whole life. Whether you acknowledge it or not, he is the Lord of everything in your life, everything about life. The scripture says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. There will come a day when all of creation, those who have been confused, those who didn't know, those who suppressed the truth, it will come a day when all of us will together, humanity and mass, will recognize and acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I would say to you, my non-Christian friend today, why not let that day be this day? Why wait until that final day when the words, Christ is Lord, are forced from your mouth with lament because you failed to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus now, today. The Apostle Paul says that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that we can say Christ is Lord over all and have that be a saving moment for us. So I'd encourage you to embrace the lordship of Jesus. He is the Lord of your life. And life works better when you are living in continuity, cutting with the grain, as it were, of the one who made you and all that exists uh, in this world. Let's get rid of the bifurcation that we have between our Christian life and neutral zones or Christian life and, and the non-Christian life. Let's get rid of all those divisions and acknowledge that Jesus owns all and is Lord of all. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you gave us Jesus as our sovereign Lord, that he isn't just a domesticated little Jesus that takes care of our spirituality and all of our cute little religious things that we do, but that he is the sovereign Lord of all who has made the universe, who has spun the planets in the heavens, who has strewn the stars across the galaxy, who has made us fearfully and wonderfully. He is the one who is Lord of all. And I, God, I pray that you would help us to acknowledge that and live into that reality, that we would not fall into a naive way of thinking that somehow there are parts of this creation that are neutral or independent from you, but that you are sovereign over all. There is no part, not one square inch of this universe that you do not put your finger upon and say, this is mine, because it is all yours. Help us to live into that truth, Lord, and rejoice in the freedom that that gives us. I pray for any here today who have not yet surrendered themselves to your lordship. May they find you to be gracious and sufficient this day. This is the day of salvation. May they find you to be true uh, and the source of all that is joyous and good in this world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.